Hey, this is Sean, and I'm here with Rose and Dan, and we're talking this week about progress and how our culture thinks about that subject and how that relates to Christianity. So to start, I just want to introduce this idea, which is that when we look at history, whether we talk about social institutions such as slavery or technology or human rights, we observe that societies and cultures and nations seem to be making progress. So progressivism, as I'm using that term here, is not tied to any political viewpoints, but a historical viewpoint that newer is better, that as time goes on, there is a force moving the world towards getting better. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? On what would be an illustration, an example of progress? Uh, well, in the medical field, I mean, you can look at any number of advances in the last, I would say, 100 years and say that there's been significant leaps and bounds in medical science. There's identifiable progress that's been made. The example I found is Bruce Springsteen's official cancellation statement. He was going to play a concert in North Carolina, and he canceled it. And this is what he wrote on his website. As you, my fans, know, I'm scheduled to play in Greensboro, North Carolina this Sunday. As we also know, North Carolina has just passed HB2, which the media are referring to as the bathroom law. HB2, known officially as the Public Facilities Privacy and Security Act, dictates which bathrooms transgender people are permitted to use. Just as important, the law also attacks the rights of LGBT citizens to sue when their human rights are violated in the workplace. No other group of North Carolinians faces such a burden. To my mind, it's an attempt by people who cannot stand the progress our country has made in recognizing human rights of all our citizens to overturn that progress. Right now, there are many groups, businesses, and individuals in North Carolina working to oppose and overcome these negative developments. Taking all this into account, I feel that this is a time for me and the band to show solidarity for those freedom fighters. As a result, and with deepest apologies to our dedicated fans in Greensboro, we have canceled our show scheduled for Sunday, April 10th. Some things are more important than a rock show, and this fight against prejudice and bigotry, which is happening as I write, is one of them. It is the strongest means I have for raising my voice in opposition to those who continue to push us backwards instead of forwards. My point in bringing up this Springsteen statement is to point out that part of his reasoning, actually a very big part of his reasoning behind making this decision, is that he believes that progress is a good thing and that those who are fighting against allowing people to choose which bathroom to enter, those people are overturning progress and that this is moving society backwards instead of forwards. So in other words, the warrant behind his morality is the ethic of progress, as if progress itself is a force that should always be obeyed or should always be... Should always prevail. Yeah, should always prevail. It's interesting, too, because if he were on the side of those who believe that someone's biology should determine what bathroom they enter, then he would call HB2 progress. Mm-hmm. But since he's on the other side, the progression of HB2 is labeled instead a negative development. So 
if it's moving in the opposite direction of your morality, you call it a negative development. And if it's moving in the direction that you think it should go in, then it's progress. But that's totally based on your own individual perspective. Right. Progress can be subjective. And that goes along with everything that we've been talking about in this podcast that, you know, whether it be morality or tolerance or hyper individualism, everything is seen through the lens of your own personal viewpoint and the cultural forces that form those viewpoints. Right. And I think a lot of what we're looking at here ever since our first episode of Seeing the Filter is how do we spot the cultural forces that are under the currents? In other words, the analogy I used before was when you're at the ocean, you see the waves pushing you in and you feel the undertow pulling you back out to sea. But what you don't see and what you're not usually aware of is the side current moving you up or down the beach until you know an hour later and you're a mile away and you're like, well, what just happened? Right. right. And so what we're trying to identify here is what the side current is doing. And I think this progress mindset or what we're calling progressivism is one of these hidden currents in our society that's pushing in a certain way. So we need to, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. It just means that we want to be aware of what it is and how it works so that we can bring Christianity to bear and the Bible to bear on how we think about it. Yeah, I don't think progress can necessarily be viewed as a linear thing. Progress that's been made in weapons of war, like the atom bomb, or even war themselves, the seemingly increase in, in the frequency of wars all around the world. I don't know that you can really argue that that's progress, and yet here we are. Progress is so qualitative. You can say we've had advances in technology, absolutely, but then to come out and make a value judgment about whether it's a good thing, right. that's to call in question if this is good prog if this is actual progress. You have to look at each individual progression that's happened and judge it for its merits and its impact on the society at large before you can link it to being inherently good. Progress itself is determined by the eye of the beholder. Mm. So it's not itself capable of being really an ethic because you have to determine, is this development negative or positive? If it's negative, we might call it regress instead of progress or regression instead of progression. But where do we get the morality to say whether something's a positive or a negative development? Well, we already have what we think is right and wrong, and, and now we apply that to a situation. Another thing I was thinking is that it's not clear to me why time itself and advancement are necessarily the same thing. Like, take, take another example from technology. You mentioned weapons of warfare. Imagine the progress in the realm of surveillance technology. You know, we had that big scandal over cell phone metadata, right? Where was that Snowden? So Edward Snowden basically revealed that the NSA was collecting massive amounts of metadata and compelling U.S. corporations to turn over that data, and they were complying with it. From a governmental point of view, if you're if you're pro surveillance, say you you work in the government or you work in um, law enforcement sector, you might look at these advancements of technology that allow the dragnetting of this data as a good thing, uh, as something that can protect people. But if you're a civil libertarian or somebody who is you nervous know, about being watched, yeah, <laughs> then you look at this as you hark back to sort of works like 1984 and, and the whole Big Brother idea, and you look mm -hmm. at this as, as a regressive thing that's occurred. 
So I think there are benefits to progress. There are detriments to progress. Another benefit is that it generates optimism. And optimism is contagious and people are more willing to take risks if they believe that the future is bright and that they're able to start a business or invent something that will help the world be a better place. So a lot of the progress mindset can actually have positive effects on society. Other societies that have a caste system or a steady state or a lot of ancient people thought that history moved in a cyclical pattern where people end up just repeating over and over the same sorts of things. These cultural mindsets did not produce the sorts of advancements we've seen over the last couple hundred years. Here's a statement that many of us associate with Martin Luther King Jr. in 1964. Barack Obama used it in 2009, but it really goes back to a preacher named Theodore Parker in 1853. And it's the line that says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the idea of progress, isn't it? It's the idea that we might have some bumps on the road along the way, but eventually things are going to work out. Morality will prevail. Justice will prevail. We will overcome, like the song of the civil rights movement. Mm. And I don't see why there's any reason why that should be true, but it's just a belief that people have. I think it's humans' inherent optimism, and that's not a bad thing, I, don't, I would submit. I think many people can be champions of progress, and I think there are a lot of people that like to follow and like to kind of adore the people. Even Springsteen wants to be, in a sense, a champion of progress, and whether that's in your scientific field or whether you're getting the Nobel Peace Prize, I think it's something that our culture has really come to reward. Let's talk about some detriments of progressivism. One of the ones I was thinking of is that it's easy to develop a haughty attitude towards other cultures that don't use technology the way we do. So, for example, the Amish, it's easy to look down on them and say, oh, they put a freeze on technology. They've got the wheel and saws and hammers, but they don't believe in electricity or they limit the use of electricity to one tractor or something like that. I don't know. I mean, are Amish people necessarily worse off than the rest of us? I mean, are, are they miserable people? I mean, what if Amish people are really happy and satisfied? What if they're looking at us as we're all tethered to our mobile devices mm. and constantly checking everything? You know, I've got to check my email. I've got to check my Facebook notifications. This app just notified me of something. Pandora just told me this band I like just came out with a new album. Everything, you know, this YouTube person I'm subscribed to just came out with a new video and, and like we're always checking things and bound to them and whereas the Amish person is sit sitting there on a log contemplating <laughs> the big questions and enjoying finer made goods yeah. than our disposable society so I, I'm not trying to like necessarily say we should all be Amish I'm <laughs> not Amish but my point is I don't think it's proper to look down on a society or a culture or a, a subculture simply because they don't embrace the same progress that the dominant culture has. The Amish are an interesting case because they choose to live without it, although they could totally be in the system. I think some of the language people use, like sociologists use on an international scale to talk about people groups, though, in developing countries, I think some of the language is loaded to kind of program us to be, you know, 
progressivist minded. So I think about first world country, third world country. I don't know what the second world is, but I think things like that have sort of programmed us to maybe look down uh, in a haughty way, but possibly look down in sort of a condescending way at the third world and the people, unlike the Amish, who choose not to live without technology, but simply haven't arrived yet. You got something there? Probably the most ubiquitous technological advancement, uh, progress, if you will, in the last 10 years are undoubtedly smartphones. I mean, it has to be smartphones. Smartphones Mm -hmm. are everywhere. They have more computing power than the space shuttle that we sent a man to the moon in in 1969. I mean, these things are insanely powerful. You, You basically have the world's knowledge at your fingertips. And... We use these things to look up cat videos and viral and viral <laughs> memes, you know, like, so that's one thing. Another thing is, you know, I think there's a number of studies that have been done that have shown that their absolutely thorough involvement in our lives and the way that we're tied up in them has led to decreased attention spans. It has um, destroyed my attention span. Yeah. I was so much more focused too. as a kid. Yeah. So I look at the Amish guy who um, I was actually just out in Montgomery County the other day and, and I drove past a Amish man in his buggy and, you know, waved to him. He waved back and I wondered that same question, you know, do they have it better mm-hmm. than we have it? Am I the sucker? Yeah. Am I the sucker or is yeah. he the sucker? In my air-conditioned Elantra, like. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, I want to share this quote by C.S. Lewis. He talks about a guy named Barfield and a conversation he had with him, who he says, destroyed forever two elements in my own thought. In the first place, he made short work of what I have called my chronological snubbery, the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. You must find why it went out of date. Was it ever refuted? And if so, by whom? Where? And how conclusively? Or did it merely die away as fashions do? If the latter, this tells us nothing about its truth or falsehood. From seeing this, one passes to the realization that our own age is also a period and certainly has, like all periods, its own characteristic illusions. They are likeliest to lurk in those widespread assumptions which are so ingrained in the age that no one dares to attack or feels it necessary to defend them. So the idea here that C.S. Lewis is, is explaining is that we can't assume that just because an idea is old or a way of doing something is out of date or no longer done in that manner, that for that reason it is not as good as what we have now. And that is what he calls chronological snobbery. I just absolutely love that (laughs) expression Mm -hmm. because I find myself slipping into that. And then as somebody who reads a lot of history, I'll read some old book and and I'll just get blown away with how somebody thinks. Like I'll read Plato and I'll be like, this guy lived 300 years before Christ. And believe me, he got a lot wrong too. Mm-hmm. And I'm by no means a Platonist. But there are some things that he writes, and you're just like, this guy is brilliant. Yeah. Or you look at somebody even as recent as Herman Melville with his Moby Dick or some of his other writings, and, and you read just his English, and you're like, I don't even speak English. I speak like yeah. Ebonics, <laughs> and he speaks English. Like That's actually what English is. And you know his way of describing things and his facility with the language just far outstrips anybody that's out there today. And I'm not advocating the opposite, that 
we're getting dumber as time goes on. That's not what I'm trying to say. But what I'm trying to say is that intelligence has nothing to do with accumulated knowledge and that it's a fallacy to say we're so much smarter than people who lived before there was electricity mm. because they're the ones that came up with the Pythagorean theorem, mm -hmm. not us. You know, we just apply it and then we accumulate knowledge on top of that. doesn't mean that we're smarter than they are. It just means that we have an advantage of accumulated knowledge, you know? Yeah, so we're basically the culture. We've been added to a very large snowball. It's been snowballing what, since the Enlightenment. Of course, we've been looking at this. Of course, we've been focusing on it. It's, we're going to look at it that way, which is very different from most other cultures throughout history who haven't been a part of the snowball. Well, well let's talk about Christianity now and how that affects the idea of progress. What I find so interesting about Christianity is that we find progress within the history of redemption itself, whether we look at how things started out. Well, I mean, obviously not how things started out in the beginning because it was paradise, but from the fall looking forward, we see a lot of progress. I mean, look at Genesis chapter six. You have the flood of Noah. You have everyone thinking only evil continually. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a low point in the history of humanity, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> And uh, so you just have Noah, he's righteous, and his family, God saves. But then as time goes on, God calls Abraham. God says, I know Abraham's going to teach his children, and, and there's going to be this legacy of the people that relate to me. And then you get to the time of Moses, and God gives the law, and the law moves humanity, at least those who are following the law, forward by leaps and bounds over what other civilizations are doing at the same time. And then we get to the time of Christ, and he, he takes the ball and he moves it way forward. He's extremely radical in how he interprets things, like in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, and how he summarizes the law and how he brings it to the next level. And then the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost and, and looking forward from there and how God is now empowering Christians to live way beyond what we would have expected in the past. And so I think even within the Bible itself, you have progress. And so Christianity, on one hand at least, is totally invested in this idea of progress over time. I love the book of Hebrews because it's all about making the new covenant palatable to the Jewish mindset. And the writer of Hebrews is talking about how this covenant is not it's not something that they can't stomach. In fact, it's so much better than the one they had. The writer of Hebrews is talking about how the uh, priests used to serve and make temporary atonement for the people. And then he says, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Mm -hmm. That's from Hebrews 8, 6. And there's no question there. Progress? Absolutely. I think if we look at eschatology as well, there's a lot of progress to be expected in the future because Revelation, the last two chapters, gives us a portrait of the world where everything that is wrong with the world is made right, where healing has arrived, where God wipes away the tears from our eyes, and there's no more sickness or death anymore. And so the Christian hope is inherently optimistic about the future. However, at the same time, the Bible has a very pessimistic view towards human nature. Mm. And that does not change, except through Christ's intervention. Right. I don't think Christians take the moral arc of the universe argument, like there's some impersonal force guiding us towards good. For a Christian, that impersonal force, if you will, 
which isn't an important personal force at all. If you're, it's if a you're personal a Christian, force. It's, it's, yeah. it's God. Yeah. <laughs> right. The moral arc of the universe is, is in God's hands. The way I see it from a history of redemption perspective is that God makes certain movements at certain times with certain people. Mm-hmm. And those movements affect everyone after that. So for example, with Moses, he brings the, the 10 commandments, he brings the law, the Torah. And after that, the people of God are never the same. They're going to be held to a higher standard. This is obscure, but I, w- I was reading it this morning. Take, for example, the cities of refuge. The law is that if you accidentally kill somebody, what we call manslaughter, that the perpetrator of that act is free to run away to one of these cities. And if he makes it to the city, then he's going to go through a trial to find out if he's guilty or not. And if he is guilty, then the punishment is he has to stay in that city until the high priest dies, and then he's free to go. However, if he leaves that city, then the family of the victim is free to kill him. Mm-hmm. And so what is, I mean, it's such a strange law, right? <laughs> but it's, there's a lot of wisdom to it because it cuts down on vendettas and people taking the law into their own hands. And then, you know, one guy accidentally kills another, say the ax head falls off and it kills somebody from this other family. Well, now they're going to kill him. Then his family is going to kill part of their family. And it escalates into this full on tribal warfare. This avoids all of that. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it strikes a balance between letting the person just go free and killing them. In a sense, it incarcerates him to a city limit Mm-hmm. for a certain amount of time and depending on how long the high priest lives it might be a long time right i don't know if i'd want to be the high priest in that situation and incentivize oh, yeah. people to assassinate me <laughs> you look at any number of of obscure laws and especially in leviticus we don't understand a lot but you know i look at the year of jubilee and what that does and how it's a completely you know from a capitalist perspective it's completely nonsensical mm-hmm. but from god's perspective the net effect of the year of jubilee is to forgive debts, free slaves, as I understand it, and day and it age. prevents monopolies too. Yeah, it breaks up the land. Yeah, and that alleviated a lot of the societal ills that would have come to the fore had that year of jubilee never existed. So the point I'm trying to make regarding the law is that God pushes things forward in um, not a linear manner, but in leaps and bounds where there is a a sudden redemptive event that brings things forward to the next stage. And we find these throughout scripture. It's not just the law and Jesus and the spirit. I mean, those are big ones, Uh, but there are several others as well here and there as time goes on. So it's not necessarily a moral arc that's linear, but it is something that happens in stages over time. And the last stage is when Jesus comes back and brings everything under God's reign. However, as I was saying before, the Bible has a very pessimistic view towards human nature, and so Christians should not be surprised when we see horrific evil. Mm. Let me read what Paul wrote about this when he stitched together this montage from the Psalms in Romans 3, verse 10 through 18. He says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so this is 
quite possibly the most pessimistic statement about human nature in the Bible. I, I was I was shooting for the big one here. It's heavy, and it's a distillation of things that we see that are true. I mean, you look at the Orlando shooting. Feet are quick to shed blood. It's a horrific event that occurred, and for all the progress that's been made for the arc of justice argument that's put forth, these things still happen. We still have uh, wars. We still have famine. We still have shootings like the, the one in Orlando that are just completely devastating. And I think the Bible hit the nail on the head when it diagnosed the human condition of everything that Paul is saying in Romans 3. It, it's The evidence is right there. Absolutely. If the Bible's right about human nature, that there is a darkness within us, then it helps us to make sense. I mean, it doesn't excuse it or anything, but it helps us to make sense of the fact that there is evil in our world, and it is ugly. And I don't think any amount of progress is going to ever completely stop that. We look at progress very often on a global and international scale, but what's needed to eradicate violence and brutality of that nature is progress in the heart. And, you know, there's many self-help books and everything that you can read. But from our perspective, reading everything we read in Romans, the only progress that can really be made uh, is surrendering to the will of God and being conformed into the image of Christ. Yeah. And the whole point that Paul's making by quoting these depressing scriptures about the human condition is that all have fallen short of the glory of God that we are all in desperate need of a Savior, of someone outside of ourselves who can rescue us and who can regenerate our hearts, who can clean us up, sanctify us, and help us to follow a path of righteousness so that we can be pleasing in God's eyes. And that's exactly what we find in the epistle to the Romans, is the explanation of how Jesus can save us from ourselves, from our own sin, from our own inclinations towards violence and towards intolerance and towards violating people's rights. I think there's a certain beauty to this idea that we hold as Christians that true progress and progress of the heart changing this fallible evil human nature that we all have inside of us to something good that comes from god that doesn't come from its divine progress when we talk about changing the heart and true transformation and true progressivism from a christian perspective you know it's a beautiful idea that we are completely helpless without god's input without him in our lives yeah i think that's the role of the holy spirit is to empower us to to make us holy. I, I really love that idea of progress within each of us that you bring up, Rose. Mm. Um, however, we all know plenty of Christians who are historical pessimists and who believe that every generation is getting successively worse. <laughs> and so there is a very strong vein of Christianity that is anti-progressive, that believes in regression over time, and that Every age is going to be worse than the one that came before it. So what do we say to that? Why do Christians think that way? Well, I have a lot of older people who tell me this on a fairly regular basis. And as a young person, I probably take a little bit more offense than I should. And I do get angry. And I like to, well, the phrase that I always use, oh, someone else just trashed my generation. <laughs> and I think, biblically speaking, looking at what Paul says about how man's heart has always been looking at the constant need for the cross. Yes, progress and backsliding manifest itself in many different ways. The symptoms may change and there will be hot topics and, and different things we're focusing on all the time. But essentially, un underneath everything, nothing has changed. We are still as much in need of salvation as ever. 
Yeah, I think that viewpoint of from Christians of historical pessimism, a very linear viewpoint of, okay, you know, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. In my well, mind, I mean, things are getting they, worse. They say, we took prayer out of schools. Yeah. And, you know, what are these other landmark things? So you have like abortion, you have taking prayer out of schools, you have... Cars. They're not, they don't make them like they used to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like everything. You can't throw a stick without hitting one of these arguments. Right. Many of the old people I talk to do bring it back to devices and social media. They say, these young people, they're on their phones, as if that is our cardinal sin. Right. There are also plenty of other moral evils that abound in our day, like pornography. Accessibility oh, yeah. to, por- to pornography is huge today. Mm-hmm. Or you look at Hollywood or just TV, primetime TV, there has been a slow move towards more foul language used in mainstream time slots, mm-hmm. towards portraying sex of all different kinds. They do have lots of points in their favor. However, at the same time that access to pornography becomes really easy because of the internet, you also have discovery of cures for serious illnesses that people have and you also have a reduction a huge in the last generation reduction of racism in america and you also have other technological inventions that help us spread the gospel way better than we could in Mm -hmm. the past and so we really have a lot of different things all happening at the same time some of them moral some of them technological some of them medical and yet at the same time History itself, I think, can help us get a grasp on how to measure our own society against others. For example, in the 4th century, Diocletian, the emperor, persecuted Christians for for 10 years, from 303 to 313. He sends out the death squads to arrest Christians, to burn Bibles, to torture us, bending limbs of trees using these large mechanical apparatuses, so that you could tie a person to one branch and then to another branch, and then you let it go and it tears the person to pieces. I mean, horrible, torturous things that have happened to our people in the past. I mean, it's just what I'm mentioning here from the great persecution of Diocletian. Compare that to, at worst, like maybe you go to jail because you protested something that is popular right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what is that like pretty much the worst it gets in America today? In America. Yeah, I mean, in other countries, obviously, it's a different story. But the point is, actually, it's gotten a lot better for Christians. We have freedom to meet and all these other things. And yet, it's also getting worse. And so things are going up. Things are going down. They're going side to side. The Bible never says society is going to get better and better each successive generation. It never says that. Then there's also a stability where the Christians of any generation are called to be faithful to that same way of life that Jesus taught us 2,000 years ago. Yeah, and I think that's what we're talking about in this podcast. There's this societal point of view that says explicitly or implicitly that progress is made generation by generation. It's like climbing a staircase that things get better and better and better. And from a Christian point of view, that's not how it goes. Which way do you want to go? Do you want to say everything is getting better and better or do you want to say everything's going getting worse and worse? People today believe both of those to be absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And ironically, they both are true in different ways if we really think about it. And so some things are getting better, some things are getting worse. There are forces of good and there are forces of evil. 
However, I think what trips up a lot of Christians is we see this final persecution prophesied in the Bible. We see how in the end there's going to be this Antichrist figure and all the rest of that, and we say, oh, well, it's going to get worse and worse and worse until that happens. Well, it doesn't actually say that. It does say that it is going to get really bad, that there is going to be a great persecution, and that it is going to be really hard for Christians during that time. But that does not necessarily mean that every year is going to get worse leading up to that. At this time, I'm going to quote Tim Keller. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> this Tim Keller moment is Not brought to you by. <laughs> who said, Christianity is at the same time both far more pessimistic about history and the human race than any other worldview, and far more optimistic about the material world's future than any other worldview. So I say, let's celebrate when our civilization makes progress and mourn when they move away from God without losing touch with the fact that the real battle is the heart of each person. And we need to worry about our own hearts, making progress, sanctification, seeking to follow Christ more genuinely, more closely over time in our own lives, and reaching out to others and helping them as well. And what I think is awesome about that is that you don't have to be a tremendous scientist or a tremendous doctor or a tremendous civil rights activist to make progress. You have to be a good friend and a follower of Christ and reaching out to people who would like to make progress and are interested in moving towards that. Second Peter lays out a very sort of succinct and edifying formula for growing and, and progressing as a, you know, in your individual walk. It says, uh, Second Peter 1 verse 5. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's awesome. I feel like that just encapsulates what we want to be in making personal progress towards being like Christ. All right. So in conclusion, Christianity is pro-progress in many ways. However, we don't buy into the idea that just because an idea has come along as of late, it is superior than what already was there before. Obviously not. We're looking to wisdom written down thousands of years ago in the mm. Bible, right? So we want to affirm the progress that has happened over time, that has happened within Christianity, within the Bible itself, and at the same time, not be naive and think, oh, well, things are just going to get better no matter what. Because we do know that eventually there is going to be a great persecution against Christianity. And then finally, we do know also that the kingdom of God will arrive on this world when God redeems creation from the bondage of sin. And that is something to be hopeful about and optimistic about. Mm. Well, that's it for this episode of Off Script, And we'll be looking at next week the subject of scientism and how that relates to the culture and to Christianity. And uh, as always, thanks for listening, and please leave us feedback. And if you've enjoyed listening to us, please give us, what, thumbs up, five stars, whatever it is, and a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you so much, guys. We'll see you next week. Ciao. Arrivederci.